You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 22. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Joanna Bixel, the co-founder and CEO of Kasha, East Africa's leading e-commerce platform for women's health products. You can connect with her at Joanna Bixel on Twitter. Born and raised in Canada, Joanna worked as a software developer at Microsoft in Seattle in the U.S. Disinterested in climbing the corporate ladder, she changed careers and moved into development. At the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, she learned how women in Africa faced real challenges in buying sanitary pads and other basic health products. She thought, why not develop an e-commerce platform for women to buy affordable, high-quality health products confidentially? And the idea for Kasha was born. In 2015, Joanna set up the company with her co-founder, Amanda Arch, in Rwanda, and has recently launched in Kenya. While East Africa was a logical starting point, Joanna aims for Kasha to disrupt how women buy health products in emerging markets around the world. We chatted about Joanna's move to Rwanda, how she finally got women to trust e-commerce, and why investors don't care about your idea. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Joanna Bixel. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, Joanna. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So why don't you talk a bit about your background and how you got to East Africa? Yes. So just as an overview, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Kasha, currently in East Africa. I started my career as a software developer. I worked at Microsoft for 11 years. So I did the corporate thing before <laughs> eventually becoming an entrepreneur. But I did a lot of things in technology, from software development to you know managing P&L of technology businesses to cybersecurity. Eventually, I moved to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where I focused on technology and global development. And so I worked in agriculture, fintech, health service delivery and supply chain. So it's really got a good breadth of, you know, how do you use technology and especially in rural and low income areas in East and West Africa. So that's my background before I started the company. Mm. Why did you want to move from the corporate side to development? Yeah, so I mean, I have nothing but a, I have a computer science degree, only a bachelor's. So I've never formally studied global development, but it's always been an area of interest for me. And especially in application of technology, there's just some really exciting things going on with technology that's very impactful. So that's always been a passion area of mine. And, you know, I started actually... I was asked to do some pro bono advisory at the Gates Foundation. That's kind of how I got started into it. And eventually a role opened up. 
And it just kept getting more and more interesting. And just, you know, throughout my years at Gates Foundation, saw, you know, some really powerful technology solutions that were also very, quite simple and scalable that could be applied in many other countries as well. And so to me, that's a really exciting concept. And yeah, so that's really why I made the move. I think also, you know, at some point in corporate, I spent 11 years there and I did many things, but, you know, I wasn't as interested in just continuing to climb the corporate ladder. And I really wanted to, I was at a point where I wanted to work on something different, something that was more meaningful and impactful. And so things lined up and I ended up moving to global development. And when you were at the Gates Foundation, what were some of the technology solutions used in development that really impressed you or that really kind of got your attention? Yeah, there's there's great solutions out there. You know, for example, I worked a lot in supply chain. So how do you get vaccines, family planning, other products to really rural areas? And so Logistimo out of India was a really interesting one. And they've also expanded across continents as well. But that's a very digitized supply chain solution that provides, you know, a lot of end data visibility. There are a lot of really exciting things in the fintech space. And with agriculture, there were, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, how do we use predictive analytics to be able to optimize insurance for farmers and optimize the inputs needed? How do we use technology to optimize yields within agriculture? That's a very exciting space. And I think especially within health services and, you know, technology used by community health workers. And I think there's a nonprofit organization out of Liberia called Last Mile Health, which I think does an excellent job at this, where they use you know, there's no, in many areas of Liberia, there's no internet access, and but they're still able to use technology and mobile technology quite effectively to have uh, data and up-to-date stock counts and various things within their community health workers. So there are many exciting things that I was able to work on. Oh, great. I know I'll have to look into Last Mile. That's the first time I've heard of that one. Actually, they've had a lot of Visibility lately, they're one of Bill Gates's favorite solutions. And so there's a lot of great videos with Raj, their CEO. So you should check that out. And so how did you get to East Africa? Because you were, as you mentioned, you know, working for Microsoft based in Seattle. And yeah, how did the move to East Africa, specifically to Rwanda, how did that come about? Yeah, so when I was at Gates, I worked while I was based in Seattle, I mostly worked in Kenya and Ethiopia and also Rwanda and in Liberia as well on, on West Africa side during Ebola. And so when the idea for Kasha started coming together, I really felt that East Africa was the place to start it. So really it was looking at both Rwanda and Kenya and and both of them have very high mobile phone penetration. And also there's the use of mobile money, which when you're doing e-commerce is really is an accelerator. And so and just higher digital literacy than in other countries, which enables an e-commerce solution to be very accessible to people. And Rwanda is a remarkable country. Um, they're moving very quickly related to technology. And, you know, they're really ambitious around the use of technology for citizen services, also very 
supportive of women's empowerment, access to family planning. And so we just very much align to the priorities of the country and the direction it's going. And it's a great place to work. There's, you know, I've never had an issue with corruption in Rwanda. And so for various reasons, also, it's a great place to live. I, we decided to start in Rwanda. Hmm, fantastic. Tell us more in depth about how you developed the idea for Kasha. Yeah, you know, it evolved over several years. And I don't know for people who think about being an entrepreneur, you know, I never thought I would be an entrepreneur, really, but the idea just slowly came together over the years. And I'm one of those people who, like, it just needs to make full sense to me. And I can see it working to really kind of jump ship. And, you know, so I iterated on it for a long time. And then when everything came together was really when I decided this has to exist. And so I'd say a lot of the the experiences I had in coming up with Kasha was through my time at the Gates Foundation. You know, I worked a lot, as I mentioned, on supply chain, including the supply chain of family planning. And basically, globally, the focus within the supply chain of family planning is to get products to clinics or to community health workers. And you know, it was this very common occurrence where in many countries, the clinics would say, you know, we're overstocked in family planning products, you know, no one coming for contraceptives. And meanwhile, there would be so much data to show and so many women saying, no, I, I do want access to these products. And so there's this obvious gap between, you know, basically around social stigma. And so even if, you know, we were able to successfully <laughs> enable, you know, 100% stock availability within the clinics, it would never solve the problem. And so really it was this area that I felt, you know, I tried to look around like, who's doing this? Who's helping overcome issues of social stigma at scale using technology? And it didn't exist, and which was really shocking. And I think there's an aspect where women, people often say women are so catalytic, women are so influential, but there's actually very few solutions built from a women's perspective, specifically for women, helping them overcome some of the struggles they deal with. And so that was a big factor. And then as well, I mean, I have most of my career was spent in the private sector. And so I very much believe in the power of business to drive social impact. And I believe if you, you know, when a company is profitable and sustainable, I mean, it will scale globally eventually if managed well. And so I've always really respected the idea of business to drive results. And so when the business model came together was when, you know, the case for Kasha was clear and it had to happen. But there were many, many influences on the company and how that came together. I have to say, it's also fantastic to have a co-founder. You know, sometimes you question yourself is, you know, is this a stupid idea <laughs> and all that. And my someone I had worked with when I was at Microsoft, she had also left to go to a tech startup. And we had kept in touch. And, you know, I had mentioned to her, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, leaving to start this company. And she absolutely encouraged me and, you know, said, no, this is not a stupid idea. Like, let's flesh this out. And she brings a great skill set. She's much more on the finance and product marketing side. And so, you know, with that combined forces, that's when, you know, Kasha really came together and came to life. And now it's operating around the country in Rwanda. And we've also started operations in Kenya. And it's been less than two years. So wow, it's been that's, quite a journey. That's fantastic. And what progress in only two years? <laughs> it feels like 10. It's so much <laughs> has happened. But also, yes, it's been an exciting time. Okay, and I want to back up just a bit and, and mention that uh, your co-founder is Amanda Arch. And she's your COO, correct? Correct. 
Yes. Okay. And I read a great article in Fast Company about Kasha. And it said, kind of talking about you and Amanda's kind of rapport and relationship in the very beginning and how you set up the business, is that you really bonded over the frustrations of how tech solutions in a place like Seattle weren't getting to the places that most needed it. So developing countries. Can you kind of recount that conversation that you had with Amanda? Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, I don't think that the, you know, solutions, tech solutions that work in a place like Seattle will work necessarily in Nairobi or Kigali or in other places. But I think what's clear is there's a ton of innovation in developed markets. And it's, you know, really cutting edge stuff that is solving a lot of problems that, that honestly are not hugely impactful. And so and one example of that, I think was mentioned in Fast Company, you know, Amazon, Amazon's based in Seattle, and you can get anything you want, basically, in under an hour to your doorstep. And whether it's by, you know, trucks or drones or, you know, Uber style cars or whatever, there's so much innovation going on just to get goods to people. And, you know, meanwhile, at the same time, I'm based in Seattle, but I'm working in Liberia and in rural Kenya and other places where, you know, there's literally, you see kids that are on their deathbed because they don't have malaria medication. And they, you know, women have so few choices in their lives because they can't get, you know, simple medical technology. And so there's a huge disconnect there. And I think part of that is, you know, business does drive innovation. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of developing markets have really just been, you know, kind of portrayed as being poor countries when actually, you know, there's a huge amount, over a billion people on the continent of Africa, majority of the people there, you know, basically teenagers around 17 years old, 17 to 19 years old, and, you know, really into technology. And so I think we're, we overlook the opportunity for business to operate really strongly there. And I think so the more that we show strong technology companies operating on the continent, the more investment that will come to the continent and the more innovation we'll make. And so, for example, Kasha, you know, yes, we do e-commerce, but we're also a consumer insights platform. And we do, you know, last mile delivery in a very digitized way. And all of this is because we also have a very commercial business model where we work with large global manufacturers and various other partners. And so I do think there's an ask, there's a lot of complexity to that. Yes, there's a lot more money going into innovation in developed markets, but that applied to other, you know, more developing markets can be hugely game changing for the world and for society as a whole. And so I do think we need to apply that technology within the context of what works and what matters and what, you know, people will use as well. And, but I do think it's a frustrating scenario when you see that comparison. And I do think it will look very different in 10 years. You know, East Africa will look extremely different. So it's also a very fast paced technology area. There's really exciting solutions coming up that are just game changing. So no, absolutely. It's almost tech in Africa is evolving. It's such a fast pace that it's going to be amazing to see what happens in five years, let alone 10 years. So I absolutely exactly. agree. So I'd love for you to step us through the business model of Kasha. You've kind of you've given hints about how it works, but let's dive into the business model in depth. Yeah, I think whenever you run 
a social business, like a purpose-driven uh, for-profit company, you do have to be creative with your business model. And honestly, there's not there's not one size fits all. It's not a cookie cutter approach. So I think everyone has to really think about the different dynamics of their business. One thing I saw when I was at Gates Foundation was, you know, for the most part, the general public within, I guess, East Africa or Rwanda or Kenya, they don't have that much money, right? There's still it's very price sensitive. People still there's a huge, you know, there are people with a lot of money. And then there's people that are living in extreme poverty. So there's quite a range. But what was clear to me is there's an incredible amount of money flowing into the continent, whether that's through corporations that are looking to do business in Africa or whether it's donors, but there's really a lot of money going into the continent. And so whenever there's a flow of money, there's services to be made, right? So Kasha was built with this idea that in the end, we want to offer you know, we're e-commerce for women's health and personal care, and we want to enable women to be able to confidentially order health products, things like contraceptives, but also to get creams and lotions and deodorants and, and other things that in beauty products and things they may want. And it's critical that we make those products affordable. So the technology has to be accessible, you know, has to be able to work without smartphone or without having internet access scale and the products have to be affordable. And so when you think about that scenario, you know, for us, it's clear you also need some other revenue streams as well, because for Nat, for us, for example, 83% of our orders come from low-income consumers, you know, and so as a re- we also serve, you know, professional women in capital cities, you know, that are executives, but, but the majority of our customers are low-income and they can't afford too much. And so, For us, we've always known we have the benefit of being a technology platform and we can really monetize that platform. And back to kind of my learnings of when I was at Gates, you know, company, global manufacturer companies, companies like, you know, Unilever and Johnson & Johnson and Procter & Gamble and Bayer and, and, you know, just global manufacturers of health and personal care and FMCG products, they definitely want to figure out how do their products sell well in the market? And that's where Kesha really comes into play as a platform. So not only do we have an opportunity to, obviously we drive you know, retail, we drive revenue and market penetration for these companies, but we're also able to provide consumer insight to improve their products, improve their pricing, improve their branding that so that it really fits the market. Mm. And you can do that in ways that, you know, we never share personal information or personal data, but offering consumer insights that's aggregated and anonymized is very powerful. Oh, absolutely. It's like you have a B2C and a B2B kind of side of the business. Yes. Hmm. And I wanted to know, I mean, I had no idea that over 80% of your customers were low income. That's amazing. I mean, and the impact is amazing. But how do you offer products at an affordable price point? Yeah, so for us, it was a surprise. I mean, I having worked with kind of the bottom of the pyramid socioeconomical you know, level, I know it's really hard to, you know, very savvy consumers, really price conscious, value is incredibly important. I didn't think we'd hit more than, you know, 30%. Just given. Mm-hmm. So, and actually, as we moved outside the capital cities was when Kasha really took off. And so it was really exciting to see because that was a big part of why Kasha was started. And we obviously had, and just the growth within that customer segment, we definitely had a good product market fit and within that segment. And, you know, 
there's a few things, right? We always, we kind of look, do the landscape of what is the cost for these products just outside of Kesha? How much do people usually pay? And then what kind of products do they have access to? Which products do they want access to? And so for us, we really make sure that our, our pricing is pretty much the same as what you'd get at that's a local store, like a Duca or a boutique or something, just a local corner store, but we offer much more variety. And because we have more of a volume, we're able to negotiate lower margins. And so, for example, there are two product categories where we specifically work to have the lowest prices because it's these are products we stand for and we stand for having access to and that's within menstrual care and also within emergency contraceptives so we've negotiated with our suppliers to have the best prices in the market because we feel they should be as affordable as possible but even other products like deodorants or lotions we have products that fit the average market retail price as well and so for us it's our job to basically you know make these products in a way that customers can afford them and then be as efficient as possible internally and on the back end to be able to really have those positive unit economics and to be able to sustain those prices. And then another reason why it's important to have multiple revenue streams if you're, you know, most of your customers are low income. Mm. And this is a more nerdy kind of supply chain inventory question. But how do you... How does that work? Like, how do you store the products for your lower income kind of rural segment so that it's it's affordable, but also you don't face the logistics issues that can be so difficult? So for us, we do have in Rwanda, for example, where we've been for longer, we have fulfillment centers around the country. So these are cash up fulfillment centers. And we just we do stock management around those. And we have various ways of delivering those products. We have a network of Kasha agents we've developed out, which are basically these are women that live in low income communities. They know their communities and they distribute the packages within their communities. So they don't necessarily know what's inside, but they know where it goes. And so we're able to reach the last mile more efficiently by really optimizing kind of this hub and spoke from a supply chain perspective, hub and spoke model. And then and so having also last mile distribution in various ways, whether that's, you know, a Kasha agent or whether it's a motorcycle or a Kasha pickup point. So we do, um, we're constantly iterating on the, how we can better optimize our supply chain. And obviously every country is kind of different. Kenya is 22 times the land size of Rwanda. So we have different supply chain strategies, but it really, it's within the same model, leveraging the same type of model we have in Rwanda. So yeah, I feel like there's no one size fits all in terms of the supply chain, but there's definitely best practices that have been used, you know, actually across the continent that work quite effectively. And I think technology enables you to digitize those as much as possible to improve the scale and the quality and the cost of that. Mm. Are you able to negotiate with the Procter & Gamble and Unilever, like all of the large FMCG manufacturers to get those goods on consignment? Or is that more a question of scale? We do have certain customers that we see as our B2B customers. And so we do have strategic partnerships with some of these you know, global FMCG companies. And so we are able to negotiate some advantages and some different payment terms and things like that. And it's great. And it's a win-win. And we've definitely seen that Kasha has been able to not just you know, increase the revenue in certain areas, but we also increase the market penetration. We reach into areas that are just not traditionally reached by e-commerce and the products sell very well. And so I do think it's quite hard for a startup 
to necessarily do it all themselves. I believe very much in partnerships and especially global partnerships can be extremely helpful. You know, the vision of Cash is that we'll be a global company that's operating around the world, serving millions of women, specifically within focused on more developing markets. But that would be so costly and time intensive to do it ourselves. But if we are in partnership with global companies where there's win-win, we can scale much faster. And so I definitely encourage startups to not necessarily go alone, but leverage strategic partnerships with global companies that have a lot of resources, have a lot of expertise, and to improve the all-up model. Mm, no, it's so true. I mean, sometimes I think the most critical thing for a startup is market access. And the best way to get that is via a large multinational, large corporate Exactly. And that could be a corporate. It could also be a, you know, a donor, you know, so one of the it was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that actually enabled us to move into Kenya to expand from Rwanda into Kenya. And so because they do have a lot of interest in our model. And so, you know, for us, if people want to get things to people, both products and information, we are a channel for that. Um, especially if you're interested in the segment that we really optimize for. And so whether that's a corporation selling soap or whether that's, you know, trying to increase access to health products for us, it all works. And and global companies have a, a reach and relationships and connections that is just really hard for startups to build. So. Mm. And I want to go back to two points. First of all, how did you develop the technology platform? We actually custom built it. It's basically omni-channel e-commerce. We do have a website, we have an app, we have a call center, we sell over social media as well. But we also have e-commerce over a basic mobile phone without internet access. So we use a technology called USSD and we've custom built that, custom coded it to operate as an e-commerce platform. And we've integrated it with mobile money for payments. So you could be you know, as long as you have access to a phone, it doesn't even have to be your own phone, you can browse through products, you can order, you can pay, and you can get that product delivered. And so, you know, in this market, you can't just, you know, set up an e-commerce site in your apartment and like, you know, <laughs> watch it all work. And so yeah. um, there's just a lot of customization. And for us, we just, we have to meet our customers where they're at digitally and because it's just not going to work otherwise. And so the way I see business is, you know, for me, it's a beautiful feedback loop. When you're adding value to customers, you know, people order from you and they order again and again. And if you're not adding value, people are not ordering and you need to figure out how to improve yourself to add value. And so I do like that about technology and being able to see are people accessing it? You know, you know, are they purchasing and how often do they purchase and all those things. So and I believe very much in data. We're a very data driven company internally and is critical to us as well. And so we've built quite a rich data platform just for internal operations as well as, you know, be able to provide insights to our B2B customers as well. Mm. Well, and I love tech solutions that use USSD. <laughs> it's so powerful. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so my second question, or, you know, I want to go back to how you touched on using an agent model. Can you expand a bit more on 
using an agent model for, I assume, you know, customer acquisition. That's how you're acquiring customers kind of in these rural kind of lower income segments. But if you could give us some more background on that. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I saw was just that agent models were being used. It's quite consistent across, you know, all developing markets, whether it's Africa or Asia or South America. I mean, agent models are quite common, especially as community health worker, agriculture extension workers. And it's really a concept that, you know, there is someone local to the community that knows the community that's able to reach people within certain context, within a certain location very effectively. And so, you know, agent networks are being used right now in banks, in health, in agriculture, in for retail, for various different things. And so, it's really around, but in many cases, such as for within uh, ministries of health, you know, around so many countries, they're unpaid, which of course is really hard. And, and mostly, for example, community health workers are not paid. They're usually women. They have, you know, kids, they're busy. And so for us, you know, we've really created a model where we provide incentives for every package that our cash agents deliver. And it's a win-win. And we have some superstar agents that are doing very well. And, you know, the more they grow the business, the more they're, you know, they receive the compensation. It's, it's performance-based and it's, it's just worked very well. And I think the interesting thing is that originally we set up the agent network as a way to, for distribution. And what we found was that these agents were are much more powerful than just you know distribution models and <laughs> these women build, bring trust they build the trust within the community and you can imagine if someone you know let's say you're somewhere in a rural area and there's this USSD platform like why would you send them your money you know mm. there's not even any pictures you don't know if these products are counterfeit or and so having agents that can vouch for the company that can show samples our agents don't have stock with them, but they are able to show samples. This is a product. This is what it looks like. And so huge trust building in that aspect. And, you know, the more that they drive that, build that trust and the brand awareness, the better the company grows. And it's really a win-win a scenario. Hmm. Kind of what was an early finding when you were doing customer research, when you were, I guess, maybe still in a beta phase? What was an early finding that surprised you? There's a, always surprises with each area. You know, I guess when we first started in Rwanda, I never planned to have a call center, for example. You know, this was never the intention. And now we receive 800 calls a day in Rwanda. Wow. And it's grown quite a lot. And what we found is just, which is different from Kenya, our operations in Kenya are not as reliant on call center, but, you know, there's the biggest hurdle in e-commerce is trust. And in Rwanda, it's very important that someone can call someone who can talk to them in their local language. They can ask questions. They know that you have an office, <laughs> you know, within mm -hmm. close to them. And so we see that our customers in Rwanda do call us to get information before they place an order. Not in all cases, but in many cases. And so that was a learning. And once, you know, you, you keep iterating and you try to figure out, you know, why are people not ordering? Let's try this. Let's try this. And then eventually you find a model that works. So, and then another thing we learned, I mean, e-commerce here is very, it's a combination of online and offline. As I mentioned, you can't just put up a website, do a bunch of SEO and boom, you have a strong business. You know, there's a lot of offline activities. We have pop-up shops, for example, as well, that, you know, complement this, you know, the digital ordering as well. And, 
Yeah, and in Kenya, when we started operations in Kenya, you know, we also had a lot of learnings, which were different from, it's a very different market from Rwanda. And so I feel like, you know, there's always a learning. And if we're not learning, there's a problem, right? And so within our company, we really stress that, you know, just the fail fast and, you know, try things out. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it's okay as long as we learn from it. We have to have learnings out of the failure so we can try again. And so, yes, <laughs> it's yeah. constant discovery. Oh, well, and I love that growth mindset. Yes, I actually, that was a book that was quite impactful for me. I read a, a book called Mindset and it was it really, you know, just, you know, there's not failures, there's just like learnings and it really changes the dynamics and helps you move faster and stay motivated. Mm. Well, and kind of on that subject of failure, what was something kind of what has been your biggest failure thus far? And what did you learn from it? I mean, maybe because I've learned that entrepreneurs are optimists. I didn't know this. But, you know, I don't, you know, on one side, as an entrepreneur, you feel like nothing's ever working out, you know, in an easy way. But I never see things as failures where they just failed. There were you know, there are challenges and things are not working, but then we just work to figure it out. So there's many, many things we tried and we continue to try that maybe aren't working, but we just haven't gotten it right. All right. Can, so you, actually, yeah, can you give an example of something like that? Yeah, I guess. So there's many things from, I guess, even, you know, when we first started working with, you know, for example, I mean, I can talk about just the USSD, right? In Rwanda, we, you know, people buy, you know, airtime over USSD, people pay for electricity over USSD. So people can use USSD, but people were not using our USSD platform when we first started working in Rwanda. And it was, you know, so it was really trying to figure that out. And it's like, you know, well, you know, based on research, this should be working. And why isn't it? And eventually you learn, well, there's this huge trust component. And, you know, just given where things are at right now, trust equals you know, seeing a person to at least build that, build the trust, not necessarily for each transaction. And so, you know, and so that was an area where we needed, you know, we tried a whole bunch of things and certain things we found were working. But that low income segment, for example, didn't kind of come online, didn't become our customers at the beginning. At the beginning, we had students, you know, students that were really much more savvy. They were our earliest adopters. And, and I think also, you know, and in terms of agents, you know, agents need to be incentivized in the right way. The way you structure your incentives is the way your business is going to grow. So we had to really learn. We're always looking at, at metrics, right? In terms of, you know, customer acquisition, recurring customers, unit economics, and like just constantly improving that. So I think everything's just uh, many challenges that we just work to overcome. But I don't think it's failure until you literally give up, you know, and you're like, mm. it's just, it's done. I wanted to touch on the data analytics and kind of the consumer insights. What is something kind of at that, you know, very depersonalized aggregate level of data, but what's something about the market that really surprised you? Again, I go back to the surprise, but just something that a finding that was just incredibly insightful. So I guess there's many of those insights. I mean, I think one that was a big surprise for us, you know, our biggest selling category is sanitary pads. And, you know, one of our, in early days, you know, we had uh, this great product. It had the lowest price of all of the other products. It was a bit different because it was more of a naturally made product, not so much 
filled with cotton, but filled with more natural material. And, you know, we thought because it's the lowest price, it will sell very well. It turned out to have very poor sales. And the interesting thing is, is that we realized that, you know, people don't just want the lowest price product, especially if you're talking about low income, they want value. So if they're going to spend their money, they want to feel good about the money they spend. And so we really, we had comments like, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather use rags than to spend my money on that. I'd rather pay, you know, a hundred francs more to get this product because to me, it looks like a, an always pad or something like that. And so the market is extremely aspirational. Even for people who are, you know, living in extreme poverty, they, they're very aspirational buyers. And if they're going to spend their money, obviously they can only spend so much and they can't afford the top line, but they want the best they can get with their money. And so price does not always equal success in the market. There's many, many other factors, but I think that's a big difference too is sometimes people look when they're assessing business opportunities they look at just purchasing power and if you compare purchasing power here with other developed markets i mean even though there's less money there's more aspirational purchasing behavior and so people you know are willing to spend more of a percentage of their income on certain products so it's there's just a lot of i guess psychology attached to purchasing behavior wow yeah that's fascinating because you're right, I do think there is a bias that we assume that people who have less purchasing power only want, you know, it's all about the price point, but, you know, clearly not. Yeah, and I think, you know, in Nairobi now, our biggest area of business is coming from Kibera. And so Kibera is the largest slum in Africa. And but the truth is people still buy products like soap and sanitary pads and, and toothpaste and various things like that. And so you know, it's really about just really understanding how to best serve customers and not necessarily, and it's not easy, it's not any, you know, but so we constantly have surprises about what people, the products people like, why they buy them, what they're willing to spend on something they feel is an aspirational purchase, all those things. Hmm. And you closed a $2 million seed round, I believe last year, or was it this year? So we raised over a million in a seed round, and then we got another around 400k in grant dollars. And now we're working towards a priced round for next year. Ah, okay. And, and could you give us a backstory about your fundraising? Because, you know, there's a lot of attention that's obviously focused on raising capital for startups and how difficult it is. Yeah, and I, I'd have to say that looking just across this entire experience and growing the company, the hardest part was the fundraising at the beginning. And comparatively, you know, running the business was, you know, comparatively easy in a sense. So, and I think for us, you know, I think one thing I, we learned is, you know, no one cares about your idea. Just no one cares about your idea. That's just what it comes down to. Maybe in other markets, but especially here, you know, there's a lot more proof points. So, for us, you know, thank God for angel investors. If you can get connected to angel investors and angel networks, they helped us tremendously because what we found is until we had data under our belts to show, you know, that our business is growing and here's customers are coming back and here's our unit economics and all that stuff. And here's how we're working to optimize that with here's our forecasts on that. You know, until we have that, for us, it was very difficult to do fundraising. And so with just, you know, angel investor dollars don't get you very far. And so you have to kind of get 
lot, but you know, they give you, enable you to show progress every single month. And eventually your business grows enough. That's when a venture capitalist or an impact investor, someone is, says, huh, oh, this is strong results. The projections look good, but you have to, you know, the story doesn't necessarily just sell itself because I think, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen and it comes down to execution and the proof that shows, you know, we can take this money and run with it and show results is, you know, de-risking. And, and also I think the other thing we learned was the importance of finding the right investors. At the beginning, we, I wouldn't say we wasted our time, but we talked to a lot of investors that just weren't the right fit for us. You know, if you don't understand. And if I can jump, I'm sorry, Joan, if I can jump in here, but what do you mean by not the right fit? Because I wanted to expand on this question as well of like, how do you find an investor that kind of gets what you're doing, gets your missions? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, we found that if an investor has never invested in Africa, they're just, they're not, they're not our investor, unless they're an angel investor that happens to really like, you know, for various reasons, they maybe they know us or they we've developed a reputation that they're like, oh, we, you know, I can trust this person with my money. But for the most part, if people do not understand operations in Africa, especially for us, you know, supply chain and logistics in Africa, they're just not going to invest. And so it's very important. And also for our business, you know, you have to care about, you know, impact, you know, enabling access to health products for women. That's that's a huge part of our company. You have to care about the fact that we do serve low income people as well as middle income and high income people. And so low income is core to our business. It's our largest business. And so various you have to find investors that fit your that really align to your strategy. I think we have in fact in the past talked to investors that were not, you know, kind of wanted to change our business or make it this way or that way. And that's not a situation you want to be in because if you're doing it right, you know your business better than anyone else and you know the dynamics of your business and you know your customers. Always be open to feedback, but you know, if you make changes, it can kill your business if you make changes that are yeah. you know not right just because it's someone's idea. So I think also one of the things we learned when I first started the company, I didn't know what a series A was. <laughs> you know, I had to Google that. I didn't know what a seed round. And we were talking talking to investors who are series A or B, B when, you know, we were pre-seed round. And so we, so finding the invest, like they're just not going to invest. They have a mandate to invest at companies of a certain growth stage. And that's just, you know, they can't go outside of that for the most part. So, so finding the investors with the right, the alignment for us, we had a lot of luck with impact angel investors at the beginning, then impact investors and investors out of Europe as well. We found mostly, we have some investors who are around the world, but Europe especially really understands doing business in Africa. And we had, you know, all these customers that kept ordering from us on the consumer side. You know, once we had that data, all of a sudden people were just giving us money. It was really, the tides were turning and all of a sudden we had proven that our ability to execute and, you know, the strength of the team. And so, and I think that makes a big difference. And so even now we're able to extend our seed round with more funding and it's a different story than it was at the beginning. So it's really about just getting going. That's mm. <laughs> yeah. And how did investors want to change your model? I think, you know, it depends on who you talk to, right? Like certain investors, every investor has a mandate, unless you're an, a person, a private investor, an angel investor. You know, there's VC companies out there that are, you know, really just about, you know, maximum revenue, 
and the shortest period of time or, you know, being sold off. And for us, it's a very different model. We do, and also I believe that that's, those are hard to find within the content. For example, people, you know, there were investors who were like, well, why don't you just, you know, optimize your model for the richest people in the area to be able to drive revenue fastest and then bring on the low income later. That's just not our company. And also I think the market is pretty small. I mean, eventually you reach the maximum of the market and you're just, I mean, there's companies that have left Rwanda just because the market size was so small and it just didn't. And so I think, yeah, it's just, it's a decision on how you want to grow your company. And also for us, we absolutely have acquisition opportunities. We absolutely have, you know, we have strong revenue growth forecasts, but we do it in a way that aligns with the purpose our company was made for rather than, you know, to adjust for some short-term results that will actually hinder the company later. Hmm. And what do you wish you had known before you launched Kasha? How hard fundraising could be. <laughs> now, honestly, <laughs> Fair fundraising enough. is a different yeah. story. It's actually, it's not that difficult anymore, but at the beginning, and I, you know, I almost feel like people tell you that, but it's a rite of passage where you go through those hard times in the first few months where you have no idea how you're going to pay, do payroll and you don't know how you're going to make it to the next month. And then luckily something comes in. And, and so I think I underestimated just, it is hard on so many levels. I also, I have two children and I'm married and, you know, it does take its toll on the family. So there's just many different aspects where it's much, much more intense than than you expect. But I think if you had known that, I don't know if people would do it. Like it's, you know, I realized it's much more of a nice lifestyle to basically work at a corporation, have a nice job at a corporation with great benefits, you know, nine to five, rather than running your own company. But it's different, you know, the highs and lows of entrepreneurship are much more extreme. But also, it's so exciting to see your idea to come to life and to, you know, serve your first customer and your hundredth customer, your thousandth customer, and build a strong team. And that part is even more rewarding than just, you know, having a comfortable lifestyle, to me, at least. <laughs> mm, no, I would agree. And who has been your biggest mentor kind of in this journey? You know, we, I don't have one core mentor. There's just many people that... I've learned from along the way and I continue to learn from. I mean, we're also very lucky to have great investors. I mean, we have great investors where we can just speak to honestly about here's the challenges in our business. Here's what we think we're going to do. What do you think? And so we really have a lot of thought partnership on our business, which is fantastic. You know, some of our angel investors that invested early on, you know, are really are experts within their certain domains and they're they're also extremely helpful to us. We set up before we had, and this I would encourage every startup to do, you know, before you have much credibility as a business, you know, set yourself up a board of advisors. And that's what we did on our early website. You know, we didn't have investors, we didn't even have a team yet, but we had a board of advisors. And so these were people, even though we may not have the expertise, they do, we can always go to them and it kind of brings credibility. So we had many advisors over different parts of our business. I think what's also really useful, having a co-founder, I mean, this is hard. It's emotionally ravaging. <laughs> That's right. 
in a very good way and very bad way, but just having someone you trust to go through with it with is very useful. I think for me, what I'm finding at this stage of the company, at this stage of my life, is for me, I have several friends based here in Nairobi as well, who are CEOs, who are moms, and I know they know exactly what I go through as well within business, whether it's people or or business or investors or, and so people that really get my situation to me are very useful, useful support. And they're also helpful as they're definitely great mentors as well. So, you know, you just kind of, you take a lot of advice and you take what works and you leave the rest, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a great tip to set up a board of advisors when you first start out. I really like that. Yes, in some cases, you know, depending on the advisor, some are just happy to help. Others want shares and, you know, but it is very valuable to be able to bring people on as advisors. And also part of that is they can help introduce you to angels. So many of our advisors also connected us to angel investors. I mean, I didn't know any angel investors before I started the company. And so you have to kind of find them unless you're lucky enough to already know investors but Mm. so getting people who have access to that as advisors will help you break into those networks and two on that note who are your investors so we have as i mentioned we have several angel investors we also have partners group impact fund we have one to four gift fest out of switzerland we have beyond capital we have a company called case for her as well. And we have Sunu Capital. So we have basically a mix of impact investors. And then we have some commercial investors like uh, East Africa Investments as well. So (laughs) yes. And so for us, it really aligned well. Impact investors gave us that, you know, after angel investors, impact investors gave us that patient capital to be able to, you know, show results. And then more of the the more commercial VCs came on at a later stage once it was a bit de-risked in a sense. But we also have Sorensen Impact Fund and yeah, we have a, a good list of investors. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'd love to know if you could go anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa on a one-year sabbatical to improve your business, where would you go and why? Huh. Well, I think that's a hard question because, you know, there's a lot of accelerator companies out there, which for me have never made much sense because they're like, you know, go somewhere for four weeks to talk about your business. And for me, I just want to be where my business is. I don't want to go anywhere for my business because I need to be there. You know, we need to figure it out and it's urgent and it's all hands on deck. And so though I feel like accelerators are never really optimized for the entrepreneur, you know, there's areas that I think... Yeah, I mean, I feel I definitely feel like there's so much richness and there's so many great people that are getting involved in the company as well and who are bringing on that are going to take our company to the next level. So I have a lot to learn from them and continuing to learn from our customers. I think Ethiopia is a very interesting market and it's just the political climate right now is extremely opportunistic in a sense as well. So I think but at the same time, you know, there's the technology infrastructure is is almost the opposite of Kenya. And so having, so I think there's a lot of learnings to be made there as well. Mm. I don't want to go. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. And if you had a billion dollars and you can invest in any sector in sub-Saharan Africa, where would you invest and why? I would, you know, I definitely, so I guess I started this business because I deeply believe in the business and I think it's a very strong investment. But I'd say in digital retail, and that's 
e-commerce, but it's not traditional e-commerce. Like really investing to creative, innovative digital retail models, there's a huge market opportunity. And then also data. There's, you know, for us, it's a very profitable area of our business. There's very little consumer level data and which is actually prohibiting many larger companies from entering the market. So there's a there's so I think both in terms of digital retail and data are key areas for investing in. Hmm, perfect. And kind of what are a couple books that you've recently read that really left an impression on you? I think so one thing that I read years and years ago that really left an impression and why I think it's really important to create women focused solutions is so half the sky is a very important book that really talks about what women go through especially in developing countries on you know a day-to-day level that's not even apparent and you know not a few like millions of women <laughs> go through this and so I think that's an important book to read one of my favorite books about entrepreneurship is The Hard Things About the Hard Things. And the great thing about that book is you read it, every, if you read it at different stages of the company, you get different things, you know, certain things you just don't get at the beginning, and then you read it again, and it has, a, it hits home in a different way. So I thought that book was great. The Lean Startup has always been, it's a model that we use. And so I think people just should know about Lean Startup and just that, you know, really agile, iterative experimentation, you know, eventually growing into a the strong business. And I think also, as we talked about before, just mindset, mindset, just from a psychological perspective, <laughs> or just how you view the world, how you view your work, and how you view the results of your work. It's really, and how everything is just a learning is really important because especially there's lots of ups and downs. And if you just take it as a learning, it's easier <laughs> and it's more effective. Like it enables you to figure out the problem. So yeah, that's a great list. Yeah. And I think um, there's just one more book that came to mind that was really good. I think it's called something like Six Billion Shoppers, which talks about e-commerce across developing markets. So going from you know Asia to South America to Africa to just across, around the world and what e-commerce looks like there. I thought that was a very interesting book as well. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. <laughs> For anyone who is you know, in a relationship, so Start to Love Repeat is a great book because it talks about basically it's written from the perspective of a woman who is you know married to this entrepreneur that grew this social business to a global company and just you know how it impacts your partner your relationship your family and so i think it's an important book too okay yeah because that's often not talked about publicly is that how being an entrepreneur it's almost that you sacrifice a lot in terms of your personal life so that's it's a great recommendation yeah, and the people that love you sacrifice a lot to support you. So, <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. But it's yeah. critically important to have that support at the same time. So Right. And as we wrap up, I'd love to know if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur. What would it be? I think I guess maybe a practical piece of advice that I had to learn along the way was to professionalize your pitch in the sense of there's many entrepreneurs, especially a lot of really young entrepreneurs that have great ideas and, you know, this and that. But when it comes down to, you know, I've actually introduced some people to our investors and, you know, when it comes down to, okay, show me your financials, you know, there's nothing there. So, you know, it's worth 
if there's a way you can, sometimes these services are available for free or you can get them built out relatively low cost, you know, build out a really professional looking pitch deck, you know, that really shows the market opportunity and what, you know, the purpose of the company is and the team. It's critically important that people are investing in the team and your level of professionalism. Invest in building out a strong financial model with actuals and projections. Those two things, it's worth the money. And I think that's where after the initial conversation, if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to get the capital you need to actually build your business. That and networks, right? Networks are, of course, really helpful as well. And so building a professional network that will help open doors to strategic partnerships is also very important. Mm. Well, and on that note, do you have any advice for how to build kind of a, a great network? Because that can seem very intimidating. If you feel like, oh, you know, I don't know anyone. How do I start? Yeah, you know, I'm not a like a, I'm actually more of an introvert. So I'm not someone who likes going to cocktail parties and this and that. But I found that actually now I have a really strong network. And I think the way it got built out is, you know, if you ask someone to go for coffee for half an hour, almost no one will turn you down. So I think it's really just an aspect of, you know, it doesn't have to be going to all these events, but maybe just reaching out to someone who is of interest to you or who's doing something that you like or who you think could be a strategic partner one day and say, hey, can we just grab coffee? Would you be open to that? It starts there. And I find that, you know, ask them, you know, is there anyone else you think I should be talking to? They'll usually refer you to three people. That's how I moved around in my career across, you know, the many jobs I did, many different roles I had. And then also that's eventually someone says, hey, do you want to speak at this conference or do you want to come to this event? And then you meet more and it just grows from there. But it's more on the quality conversations than just the little exchanging business cards scenarios. Right, right. Which seems so transactional. And people just don't remember, you know. No, absolutely not. All right. Well, that's great advice. Um, Also, I want to know, where can our listeners follow you on social media? So I'm pretty active on Twitter. So at Joanna Bixel is the place, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And then also on our, the company, we have at Kasha Kenya, at Kasha Rwanda as the social media. So you can kind of see what we do there. But yeah, if you direct message me on Twitter, I can uh, get back to you and we can meet that way. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcasts. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.